And so this is not some Jewish city within Israel that he's being called to go and to preach. He's going to Nineveh. These are Gentiles, and they're not just Gentiles. They are wicked, depraved Gentiles. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We've just finished our series in the book of Romans, and today we look at the second part of a new series of messages in the book of Jonah. In this series, Pastor Brogy examines both the historicity and the relevance of this great book. In today's message, he'll begin to unpack why Jonah was so adamant about avoiding Nineveh. Let's join him now. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the prophet Jonah. It's in the Old Testament. If you're new to the Bible, just find the Psalms. That's about midway. And if you'll scan to the right, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, then Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Uh, it's right next to Obadiah, if that will help you, all right? So uh, use the table of contents. Maybe that will be useful. But once you have found it, don't lose it. Because God willing, I am planning to do a total of 10 messages from this book. And if you were not here for the last one, it's foundational. I'll briefly review, but 90% of what I said in the last message, I will not cover today, yet it's foundational to understanding this small little book written by the prophet Jonah. Now, these Old Testament prophets, they are men for all seasons. They spoke of war and peace and violence and justice and love and faithfulness and truth. And people think, well, they wrote for their day. No, their message is timeless and it's timely for our day. It's relevant because it is the revelation of God Almighty. And so we are reading and studying this morning the Word of God. And these prophets of old really had a twofold ministry. One was to comfort the afflicted, but also to afflict the comfortable. They are often described as the voice of Israel's conscience. At least they had a conscience. And we are living in a nation where there seems to be a diminishing conscience, a conscience that is becoming seared and calloused. And sadly, some Christians think, well, the Old Testament was just, again, for Old Testament saints. No, the Apostle Paul reminds the church at Rome, for whatever was written in earlier times, he's speaking about the Old Testament times, what we call the Old Testament, what Jews call the Tanakh. It's an abbreviation for the Torah, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, the writings. That's how they summarize their Bible. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. In other words, there's something we can learn here. So that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. In other words, he's just reminding us that the instruction and the application of the Old Testament did not expire with the Old Testament era. In the early church, for a long time, all they had was the Old Testament scriptures to preach. Paul would go into the synagogues and he would defend from the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I hope you have found it. Jonah chapter 1, we're going to read just the first three verses this morning. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against me, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now let me give you an overview of this chapter because we're going to be here for a few weeks and I want you to know where we are headed. Uh, We find Jonah here in three different relationships. In the first three verses, he underscores Jonah's relationship to the Lord. Then next time when we come to verse 4, in verses 4 through 16, he underscores Jonah's relationship to the sailors. And then finally in verse 17, he describes Jonah's relationship to the fish. So this morning we're going to focus on Jonah's relationship to the Lord. There's a note-taking outline if you're new here. If you're online, there's a place there where you can print it out. Let's begin by examining Jonah's commission. Jonah's commission. Uh, I want to read verses 1 and 2 again. The Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it. Why? For their wickedness has come up before me. Now, if you were here last time, you will remember that it becomes apparent as you read this book that there are four major divisions that are built around two principal commissions. And so when you outline a book of the Bible, which is always helpful, so that if someone asks you what Genesis is about, you can say, oh, four events, four people. Creation, fall, flood, nations, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. That's Genesis. Ephesians, what you believe, one through three, how to behave, four through six. You have a working knowledge of Scripture. And so as you read through a book of the Bible, you want to look for structural markers. We just read the first structural marker. It was found in verses 1 and 2. It appears again in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. So as you can see on this book chart, chapters 1 and 2 focus around the first commission of Jonah, where chapters 3 and 4 focus around the second commission, or what we may call the recommission of Jonah. The first commission begins in disobedience and it ends in obedience, whereas the recommission begins in obedience and it ends in disobedience. Jonah is often called the AWOL prophet. In the beginning of the book, he's absent without leave. At the end of the book, he is absent without love. As you read through these two sections, you discover the first two chapters take place while he's on the sea. And the last two chapters unfold while he is in the city of Nineveh. Um, He is basically in the first two chapters. The theme is God's goodness or God's kindness to Jonah. And the second two chapters, the emphasis is on God's kindness and goodness to the Ninevites. You could further subdivide the book into four major headings. In chapter 1, we find the prodigal prophet. Here's Jonah. He's running from God. In chapter 2, we find the praying prophet. He's running towards God. In chapter 3, we find the preaching prophet where he's running for God. And we will finish the book with the pouting prophet where he is running ahead of God. So it's an easy outline to remember. The uh, prodigal prophet, the praying prophet, you'd be praying too if you were in the belly of the great fish. Uh, He's the preaching prophet, and then he's the pouting prophet. Now, let's zoom in again on verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, who is Amittai? I told you last time it was not important enough for God to tell us who he is, except to underscore that this is Jonah's dad. But while every single word of Scripture is inspired and important, 
the meaning of both of these names is critically important. There's no filler in Scripture. Nothing is written accidentally. Jesus said every single word down to the smallest jot and tittle is inspired. Now, the word Jonah, Yonah, is the Hebrew word for dove, and it's translated sometimes contextually simply as dove. The first uh, picture of a dove in Scripture, of course, is in Genesis 8. If you remember, Noah sent the dove, and it flew back, the Bible says, with a beak of, inner beak of a freshly picked olive leaf. Um, so the dove has become a picture of, of peace, whether it's on a banner or a flag. Uh, we often use it as a picture of peace. And so Jonah symbolizes peace in his name. He is coming to bring a message of how someone can have peace with God. These people, like all of us by nature, are under God's wrath, but they were very close to a earthly wrath if they did not repent. God was going to wipe them off the face of the earth because of their wickedness. And unless you have peace with God, you may live 70 or 80 years, but 70 or 80 years is but your breath on a cold day, James says, compared to an eternity. So we want to die having met the Lord peace with God. In addition to Jonah the dove, we, his reference here is the son of Amittai. Amittai comes from the uh, Hebrew word amen. We get our word amen from it. And so his name means my truth or my amen or the truth or the amen. And so here in verse 1, God introduces us to Jonah the son of Amittai to underscore that he is a prophet, he is a messenger of peace, and he is born of the son of truth. He has some great uh, roots that are behind him. And God wants him to tell the truth to the Ninevites. And the message that he's going to preach is not a message just about love and joy and prosperity. His message is very simple. If you do not repent, you will be destroyed. And by the way, the message is not changed. Jesus said, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Once again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, we noted last time, and I'll just briefly review. It was an hour and 20-minute sermon online if you have the stomach to listen to it that long. But we looked at various approaches to the book of Jonah. Some see it as a fable or as an allegory or as a parable, but not as a historical event. And yet Jonah is described in historical terms because this is indeed an historical event. You should have out in your margin next to verse 1, if you were here last time, 2 Kings 14, 25. And if you miss the message, you can download the Search the Scriptures app and you can listen to it at your leisure. 2 Kings 14, 25. Let me begin by reading 2 Kings 14 and verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel sin. So Jeroboam the second, he's this wicked king who is described as doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And then I had you write verse 25 in the margin. Let me read it to you. He, this king, restored the border of Israel 
from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord. He was God's tool. He may have been wicked, but God was still going to accomplish his purposes through this king because God sees the long plan. And so he established the border according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai. There he is, the prophet, who is from Gethhafer. So here we find a brief record of his earlier prophetic ministry with some very important historical clues. First, the nature of his initial ministry was a message that was quite pleasant. King, God's going to prosper you. He's going to grow your border. That was not difficult to preach. I'm sure he probably enjoyed it. But I want you to see that he's described as a real person, Jonah, the son of Amittai. He serves in a real court under Jeroboam II, or under yeah, King Jeroboam. King Jeroboam lives about 750 years before Christ. And that's when Jonah is in ministry. So we know he's a prophet. We know something about the nature of his prophecy. Uh, we're told the king's name that he served, and we learn something about his genealogy. He's the son of Amittai. And fourth, we learn that he's from gath Hefer. gath Hefer was an important little place. If you've ever been to Nazareth, about three miles outside of Nazareth is gath Hefer. It's about a half a mile from Cana. And that's where he was born and raised, very close to where Jesus spent the first 30 years of his life. My point here is right here in 2 Kings chapter 14, we have a historical reference from a historical book about a historical person. And just as Israel was a real nation and Jeroboam was a real king and Hamath and Gethhafer were real places, and the Sea of Arabah was a real sea, so Jonah was a real person. And before we're finished with this prophet, we will see that the clenching argument to reject that this is just a parable, that this is just an allegory, that this is just some moral spiritual lesson, or some would say a fable like Her Hercules, to reject that, we will see that he's described ultimately by Christ, which is the clenching argument as a real historical person. So if you say that this is just a fable or a parable as one popular pastor used to do in our town, then you're going against what Jesus said. Let me just make that clear, okay? So your argument is not with Pastor Carl, it's with King Jesus. Jesus said to those doubting Pharisees, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus makes a parallel how Jonah became assigned to the Ninevites as he will be assigned to the generation in which he ministers. Christ portrays Jonah as being in the belly of the sea monster. He's saying, this is a real event, as real as my own resurrection. And that's why he can say in verse 41 of Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, please notice he regarded the repentance of Nineveh as an event that took place, as a historical fact. He is underscoring the historicity of this prophet. And so if the Ninevites 
could respond to Jonah's life and message than the Jews who had far much more revelation in Jesus' day. God himself in bodily form was there. The Messiah had come. They could have and they should have repented as well. And so Jonah's preaching, in essence, will be a source of condemnation. Then he adds, listen, the queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it. Why? Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus references Jonah also in reference to the queen of the south. She was a real queen. She wanted to come to hear about Solomon because this queen was so enamored with the reports that came, she wanted to come and meet the man personally. So Jesus compares the historicity of Jonah with the Ninevites, with the queen of the south, and so on. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now we need to ask an important question. How precisely did the word of the Lord come to Jonah? Well, quite frankly, we don't know. But we can say in a broad sense, based on Hebrews 1 and verse 1, that the Old Testament prophets received revelation in many portions and in many ways. And a cursory look of the Old Testament affirms that simple truth. They were receiving revelation in many portions. And as you read the 39 books of the Old Testament, you will read of law, you will read of prophecy, you will read some parables, you will read some poetry. Some of it is doctrinal, some of it is ceremonial, some of it is ethical, some of it is moral. In addition, the writer of the Hebrews underscored that the prophets received not only many portions, but it came in many ways. And again, as you read the Old Testament, dreams and visions. Uh, God spoke sometimes on top of a mountain in a storm and in thunder to Moses. Sometimes he spoke through the still small voice to Elijah. Sometimes he spoke through an object lesson like we'll see with Jonah in the belly of the great fish. Sometimes there were Christophanies where the angel, or maybe better, the messenger of the Lord came, Christ, in pre-incarnate appearances before Bethlehem showed up on a number of occasions in the Old Testament and gave direct revelation. Then there were Theophanies where God the Father himself gave direct revelation like he gave to Moses up there on top of Mount Sinai in the midst of thunder and lightning and fire. So sometimes his word... Uh, also came just literally, directly, through the inspiration as the Spirit of God wrote through them, and sometimes through direct communicate. It came in many portions and in many ways, and as you read the Old Testament prophets, there is one ongoing message simply to be continued. It's incomplete. Why? Because the scriptures spoke of Messiah. Moses saw my day. He wrote of me. Abraham saw his day as well. And so it was incomplete because it's not until the Lord Jesus, until God leaves heaven and steps on the planet, that all that is written of him is complete and all the details are filled in. So every prophet spoke of Christ, and Jesus will affirm that to be true even of Jonah. 
that his experience is an analogy of Christ's own resurrection. So we're not told how God spoke to Jonah, but I am content to know that he did speak, and that's what's critical to our understanding the book. Whether he spoke inwardly or outwardly, the Lord, for whatever reason, does not tell us, but he does underscore the word of the Lord. See the caps? It's the tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H. Yahweh, the word of Yahweh, came to Jonah. By the way, that phrase appears a hundred times in the Old Testament, and in every instance it appears, God is getting ready to do something. Someone was about to go into action, or something was about to happen, and something begins to unfold in relatively fast motion, and this book is no different. And so Jonah is not left to wonder, what does God want me to do? What does God want me to say? And neither are we. God has plainly spoken, and we need to read and study what he has said. God spells it out here for Jonah. Notice verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, there are three commands that summarize his commission. You should circle them or underline them. Arise, go, and cry. By the way, you need a paper Bible. You'll get a lot more out of the sermon. I'm not against the electronics. I was one of the first electronic Bible testers in America. So I've been using electronic Bibles, but in case you're wondering, this is what it looks like. And when you have a Bible that you can mark up and read, it's going to stick in a way that no electronic Bible can accomplish. There's benefits to them, but you need a paper copy. And if you don't have one, come to meet the pastor tonight. Three imperatives, three commands. These are not suggestions. There was a popular preacher years ago, Robert Schuller. You remember the Glass Cathedral? He had actually the largest television and radio ministry in the world, but he was a heretic. And so he spoke not of the Ten Commandments. He did a series on the Ten Suggestions. They're not suggestions. They're commandments. These are imperatives. You could put an exclamation point after each of them. Go to Nineveh, the great city. And the adjective great is not accidental because Nineveh was a large and prominent city. The Assyrian Empire was a strong, powerful, rich, and yet evil empire. And ancient historians tell us that Nineveh was the capital. And so sometimes Nineveh is just used to describe uh, the place called Assyria. Washington, D.C. becomes emblematic of the United States of America. And ancient historians tell us that it was a large city, larger than its successor, Babylon. It was powerful and it was intimidating. And when Jonah is called to preach around 750 B.C., Assyria is the dominant empire. And 22 years later, in 720, or 25 years later, in 722 B.C., they're going to come down and they're going to crush the 10 northern tribes. Remember, Jonah's ministry, again, the introductory message is important. We described how the kingdom split into 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes. So we just read from 2 Kings 14 of two kings reigning at the same time because the kingdom is split north and south. 
So they're going to come down in 722 BC and carry away the 10 northern tribes. Many of you know the city of Nineveh, that it stood on the east bank of the Tigris River, and it's across from the Iraqi city of Mosul that some of our Marines have been to. And you can see on this map that he uh, comes from a place called gath Do we have a map? There we go. So um, in the middle there, maybe it's not the clearest map, but you can see Israel. And north of the word and south of the word Israel, you can see a body of water. There's a river that comes from the mountains, and it creates a lake. That's the first body called the Sea of Galilee. A lot of Christ's ministry, of course, took place there. And then that river continues, the Jordan River, all the way down to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is very important in Scripture, not only in the past, but in the future. Someday men will be able to fish there. That's what the Scripture teaches when Messiah comes back. Now, in Israel, west of the Sea of Galilee, there's a place called Galilee. And there's a province called Galilee, and there's a city called Nazareth, where Jesus, as you know, spent the first 30 years of his life. Three miles from Nazareth, a half a mile from Cana, is Gathafer, where Jonah the prophet grew up. And if you come with me to Israel, sometimes we'll have the opportunity to point out that particular location. And so this is not some Jewish city within Israel that he's being called to go and to preach. He's going to Nineveh. These are Gentiles, and they're not just Gentiles. They are wicked, depraved Gentiles. Now, it's a 500-mile journey from where he is in Gathafer, and it's not the distance that bothers him as it is the place. God wants him to go to Nineveh. Now, that's Jonah's commission. Go to Nineveh and preach. In addition to Jonah's commission, I want us to think a little bit about Jonah's message. Jonah's message. The message of truth that Jonah is to preach is very simple. It's found in chapter 3 and in verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words in English, five words in the Hebrew text, making it the shortest recorded message of any prophet to a rebellious people. Now, notice here in chapter 1 and verse 2 why it is that God wants him to preach this message yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry against it. Why? Because, or for, it's causal. Their wickedness has come up before me. Paraphrase, God is saying, I've had it up to here. Just like the sins of Sodom that came up to God as a stench, so the sins of this perverted, wicked, and cruel people had come into the presence of God. And so Jonah's mission here in the NASB is to cry against it. The CSB says, preach against it. The Net Bible says, announce judgment against it. So he is not so much informing the people of their specific sins because they are covered over in them. They know their sins. He is here to preach the consequence of their sin, that judgment is coming and that it is imminent. And by the way, God never gave this prophet a promise that he would be successful or that the people would repent 
or that he would even survive this mission. For all he knew, his head would end up on a pole. God told Jonah what the mission was. He didn't give him a promise as to the outcome. And sometimes we're called to obey without knowing the results. If you'd like to listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us at 877-787-7478 and requesting program JNH2. You can also visit searchthescriptures.org and listen to the messages in Romans if you missed any of those. Whenever you call or visit us online, consider supporting the ministry of Search the Scriptures. Your generous one-time or recurring donation helps to enable the ministry of Search the Scriptures. Tomorrow we'll continue our series in the book of Jonah. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.